Today we're going to be in Luke 16, 1 through 18. The last time we were together, we went through largely the uh, famous parable of the prodigal son. Even in the secular world, they use the term the prodigal son. And in doing so, we learned a lot about the older brother. We hear so much about the, the younger brother, but we, we actually got into what the older brother represents. And I thought that was a good thing. We see the implications of legalism and cultural Christianity in that. And today, it's going to be a little bit different. The operative word is stewardship. In the dictionary, stewardship is the responsibility of management of another's goods by a trustee or a chief servant. For our application, it's the responsibility or management of God's gifts and his material blessings on us to use them wisely for the sole purpose of furthering the kingdom of heaven. We even see in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were given a command and they largely didn't fulfill their ministry that they were supposed to, but they were supposed to cultivate. Remember, the creation was made first and then mankind was made afterwards and then God rested. So he made everything for them and said, cultivate it, subdue it, have dominion over it. They were supposed to be stewards over God's creation. So we're going to go into verse 1 and 16. It says, And he also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. I look at this as an atypical parable. Jesus draws a parallel between how the sons of light and the sons of the world each deal with their wares. But what's unusual is that he shows us as children of the light lessons that we can learn from the children of the world. And the story unfolds like this. An accusation is brought against a man for basically being a crummy steward. So he gets a wake-up call, this guy, and he realizes that if he's fired, he can't survive because he has no other skills, and he's ashamed to beg. So he's got a plan that he devises. He contacts all his master's borrowers and strikes a deal with them to call in their notes by giving them a discount. The, there's one, the first distinction that's made through the story is, and we've said this before, there's two types of people in the world. Forget about what you're going to see on television. It's not the struggle between rich and poor. It's not the struggle between black and white. An election season is coming up. It's not the struggle between Republican and Democrat. Unfortunately, in New Jersey, they're all kind of the same. There's very few of them have any, any values that we would want to vote for. But the, the distinction is between children of the light and the children of the world or children in darkness. Let's now take our minds and bring it to what God's word says. And now let's talk about the two types of people in the world. Jesus said the ones on the right, my right hand and the ones on my left hand. The sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, that's the distinction that we need to be looking at. So the question is, now knowing that, what side of the fence are you on? Have you ever thought about that? 
You, are you not sure where you stand with the Lord and your spirituality? That's the side of the fence that you need to be looking on. Am I on God's side or am I not on God's side? Don't get caught up in the nonsensical delineations of the world. It's a smokescreen. It's an obfuscation to take you away from what, what the truth is, what we really should be looking at. In verse 8, Jesus states a fact. He says those in the world and those in darkness basically deal more shrewdly than we do. Now, Matthew 10, 16, I'm going to get to the second part of the verse and, and, and turn it around a little bit. Jesus said to be, uh, to be gentle as doves, but to be wise as serpents. We need to match Satan's shrewdness and all the while be a good Christian. How do you fight a ruthless enemy and be good at the same time? It seems like a paradox, doesn't it? How do you win when you're the only one playing by the rules? I think about the war on terror. Where's the reciprocity? You think about the whole debate about torture. Uh, they're doing awful things to our servicemen, beheadings and things I can't mention in a public forum that I know about. Uh, and we're concerned that we make them stand in a cold room and listen to American rock and roll, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Now, I used to listen to the Chili Peppers. Maybe that is a form of torture. I don't know. <laughs> or look at Guantanamo Bay. You know, we're, oh, we're so mean to them. Some of these terrorists are coming in at 200 pounds. There's one reported case. One guy's up to 400 pounds. They eat good. We take good care of them. As a matter of fact, the kid I was uh, training several months back, uh, my rookie, was a, uh, in the military, a guard at Guantanamo Bay, and he came to the police force, and I deprogrammed him, and I just wanted to know everything about that happened down there. But the reports are coming out now that we're taking good care of these people. But we don't have the same reciprocity on their side. And it's just an example. In open ranks, we would cream the terrorists. The war would be over by now. But we're trying to be as good as possible, and they're not playing by the rules. So it's a difficult thing. Don't listen to what the media says. They only tell you what they want you to hear. There's only a handful of people that own all the media outlets and don't think that they're not in collusion with each other. But um, another example is you see the drums, the electric guitar, right, the bass guitar. For years, Satan has used those instruments for demonic purposes. And all of us know, and it doesn't matter what type of music you listen to, rock, classic, worship music, it's all powerful. When you come in here and, and it's playing, it brings you into the presence of the Lord. It changes the channel. Whatever's going on, you're now thinking about God, right? So music is a very powerful tool. As a matter of fact, if you look at Ezekiel 28, it says that when Satan, the anointed cherub, was created, he was created with instruments that complemented him, right? They went with him. They were his complements. Um, certain types of music drives people into a frenzy to commit violent acts. We all know that. Even in the Old Testament, that whole um, that idol that they had, the uh, false god Molech, they would make him out of stone or metal, and he would be he would have his arms outstretched, and in his lap they would build a fire and heat up the arms red hot, and then they would take the unwanted uh, babies and put them in the arms of Molech, and they would beat the drums and play certain type of music so people would drown out the screams of the babies as they went to their demise. So music is always has always been a very powerful tool. But I get chills when I hear worship music and it brings me into the presence of the Lord. It does something inside to me, right? Because I know what I used to listen to. I used to listen to um, heavy metal. And uh, now I guess it's called, it was called then thrash metal and then grunge. And probably the young people will make fun of me because I don't know what it's called now. But I just would remember taking a trip and listening to this music. And by the time the trip was over, half an hour, an hour, 
I'd have anxiety and I'd be thinking all these thoughts and I was like, why do I feel like this? <laughs> Maybe it was the music I was listening to. But some people would say, Joe, those are the devil's instruments. How could you have them up there? Well, number one, I don't know scripturally where those are the devil's instruments, but I would just say this. Let's take those instruments now and turn the tables around on, on Satan. Shove it up his nose, you know, use it for something good to worship the Lord. So, you know, turning the tables, that's a good thing. But, um, you know, I, I, I think of who said that we have to, people picture Christians as uh, weaklings, as like, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. But whoever said that Christians had to be wusses, you know? I'm tired of seeing the world and the godless media try to browbeat pastors. And I'm, try, I'm tired of them trying to tell us what we should be believing as Christians. There's judgment. There's crime and punishment. There's war. Romans 13 speaks about execution of evildoers. And that's in the New Testament, right? So what am I trying to say here? What I'm trying to say is that we can't know the goodness of God. We can't know what we're saved from. We can't know the beauty of salvation and take it for granted unless we know what we came from. There is judgment. Judgment awaits for the sinner. Uh, what is it, Jonathan Edwards? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. There's judgment out there for people who, who are rebelling against God. So when we come to the cross and we're saved, we need to know what we're saved from. And how could God be a God of judgment and a God of mercy and love at the same time? Very easy. The cross rectifies those two. The judgment for sin and the, and the damnation has already been paid for on the cross. All you have to do at this point is choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're free from all that. That's where the beauty lies. But we need, to be, we need to be shrewd. And shrewdness has a negative connotation. What does it mean to be shrewd? Does it mean we work ourselves up into a frenzy and we start protesting everything and, and, and doing crazy things? No. Does it mean the ends justify the means? No. What does shrewd mean and what does it not mean? That's the key. Verse 9. He says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. So what it's saying literally is do business with unrighteous mammon or wealth, the wealth of the world. Because when you fail, maybe when you die, or an alternate translation is when it fails, either way what it means is when the temporal world is done and money and wealth is no longer needed as a medium of exchange, they, the heavenly host, will receive you into everlasting habitations, uh, which is heaven, of course, the afterlife. We know what worldly people do with wealth. But what are we supposed to do with wealth? We're supposed to use it to further the kingdom of God. That's our job. Where religious leaders have, have gone wrong, and I'll, I'll speak more about that, is they think that this means furthering the kingdom of God and using unrighteous mammon is to make themselves rich and amass empires. I think they got it a little wrong. And I'm, I'm really sad to see that many of these pastors have prostituted the gospel so that they can be wealthy. And that's, there's no other way to say it. That's the truth. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not a sin to be wealthy. I'm indifferent to wealth because I've really never tasted it. But I don't think it's fitting. I don't think wealth is fitting for a pastor or a shepherd. I just think that's one occupation where you shouldn't be filthy rich. If you want to be rich, do something else. Don't do that. Furthering the kingdom of heaven is not lavishing myself with riches and hoarding resources. A few things in scriptures. When Jesus was born, Mary came and offered the customary sacrifice after a baby is born. What did she offer? She offered two turtle doves. We covered that in the beginning of Luke. 
what that meant was Jesus came from a poor family. All these people saying that Jesus was rich and all that stuff, it's not true. The scripture tells us that. Jesus said that foxes have holes and birds of the nest, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Peter said, Peter and John, when they were healing the lame man at the, at the temple gates, uh, he looked at the man and said, look at us. The man looked at them expecting, the Bible says, to receive alms, to receive a gift because he was, he was crippled and he couldn't work. Peter said to the man, silver and gold, we have none of these, but what we have we offer to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. So they didn't have riches. And we're going to read 1 Timothy 6 that speaks about the snare of riches in ministry, especially. Uh, I find myself too many times doing damage control when I witness to people. Because people's biggest complaint is the marriage, the unlikely bedfellows with wealth and the church. People are tired of that. It's a stumbling block to them. You know, it's that, that marriage that they have a problem with. Um, I, I got to say, it's, it's they, people find it hard to believe that we don't, I don't want to know what people make. I don't want to know what any of you make. I don't, you know, we don't do stuff like that. We don't send things to people's houses. I don't remember one missionary that I've ever said no to, and we don't charge for weddings and funerals. My mother-in-law told me about a congregation that she attended where the, the pastor had the congregation buy him a Bentley. Does everybody know what a Bentley is? Well, I didn't, so I looked it up online, Bentley.com. <laughs> well, the cheapest Bentley goes for about $165,000 for an automobile. Can you believe that? Pastor Anthony, don't be taking notes here to find out what that church is. <laughs> He's like, I'm out of here. No, I'm just kidding. But what do we have stewardship over? Number one, the gospel. The most precious item in the universe is the gospel. That's what we had stewardship over. What do we do with the gospel message? Two is our spiritual gifts. The, the, the interesting thing is even those right now who don't know the Lord, God has spiritual gifts for them and they don't even know it yet. A lot of new Christians haven't realized their spiritual gifts. So the second thing that we have stewardship over is the gifts, the spiritual gifts that God has given us. The third thing that we have stewardship over is material blessings. We've been blessed all in some way materially. What do we do with those material blessings? For our time. That's a big one that people don't look at. Are we involved? Are we pouring ourselves in other people's lives in some way and setting some type of an example? Will we take the time if somebody is new in the faith and asks us question to pour ourselves into them, our, our knowledge, our discipleship, visiting people when they're down in the hospital and so forth? And five, the last thing we're going to look at in verse 18 here is we have stewardship over our marriages. So you have two rich neighbors, right? They live next to you. One of them buys, uh, you know, all kinds of lavishments, you know, the homes, the cars, everything. They spend everything on themselves. You have another rich neighbor who lives well but spends a good percentage of what they have to bless other people less fortunate. I think it's a, a no-brainer to figure out who's a better steward of, of what God has given them. But understand this also, that Jesus is not commending dishonesty, but the foresight and the savvy of this steward. And actually, people think that, well, what he did was dishonest. There's a possibility that there was no dishonesty at all. He could have taken the final price that he gave to the borrowers. It could have been uh, retail minus commission plus interest, knowing that he wanted them to receive, and this is just speculation, knowing that he wanted them to receive him into their homes or workforce or whatever after he was kicked out of the, the original master. He might have given the price less commission, his own commission, and less interest. And it would have been legally binding. A steward in those days who had uh, stewardship over his master's affairs, 
it was legally binding, whatever price he set. So there may have not been any dishonesty at all with this. But our application, of course, is to use anything at your disposal here to further the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, maintain your walk. That sometimes is the hard part. We're not supposed to be shrewd and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, aggressive business people, but we, you know, we, we do our business and, and, and try to hurt, and hurt people along the way. That's not how we're supposed to do it. Verse 10. It says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? How many people here own or have owned a business? Raise your hand. Have you ever owned? Wow, a lot of people. Um, By a show of hands, if you put your hands down, by a show of hands, how many of you would take an entry-level employee with no skills and immediately make them vice president of your company? Nobody. <laughs> For the record, nobody raised their hands. Why not? Because they don't have any experience or expertise. They haven't proven themselves. Now, it's good, and I've, I know people who have started in entry-level positions and have worked to the top of the company. That's a good thing. But... They have to prove they can handle successive levels of responsibilities. And if you can't, you're not even going to get promoted the first time. I remember this one recruit. And, you know, when the rookies go through the the police department, it's it's just similar. They all have their heads shaved and they have their khakis and they all look the same and don't say much. I remember this one guy came through and he would say to the officers, the veteran officers who were there, he would say, someday I'm going to be your chief. Yeah, I'm going to be the chief. We all looked at him like, you don't say that in post-training. It's not something you do. But he, he was so ambitious with his mouth, but he didn't get through like two weeks of the police academy. He ended up failing out. So he was able to talk the talk, but he couldn't walk the walk. He couldn't produce. If you can't handle earthly things, God will not give you spiritual things. He won't, he won't commit to your trust heavenly things. Paul speaks about in Corinthians and says, don't you know we will be judging angels? In a sense, in a lot of in Corinthians, he's like, stop, being, stop behaving like children. God is going to commit some pretty heavy responsibilities to us in the afterlife. Why are you guys suing each other and doing all these things when you're acting like children? Put away childish things. In verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There's a difference, a big difference, between using money to further the kingdom of heaven and using money to further our own agendas. If God is your master, you will do the former. If you make yourself out to be your own God, you will, be, you will do the latter. Jesus says, where you put your treasures, your heart will follow. Where you put your time, where you put your resources, where you put your energy, that's where your heart will follow. If it's in God, you'll be a godly person. If it's in the things of the world, you'll be a worldly person. Jesus spoke in very simple terms that even the most simple people like me could understand what he was saying. So we may say that we serve God, but do we really? Do our actions indicate that we serve God? Are we, do, we, do we do it because we feel we're obligated to and we're kind of grumpy and miserable as we do it? Or do we serve because we serve with a joyful heart? Uh, you know, we all have bad days, but I don't want anybody to serve unless they're unless they're joyful about serving. Otherwise, we're serving with the wrong heart. Verse 14 says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. 
And he said to them, you are those who justly justify, or you, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. I also want to turn to 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. 1 Timothy 6. Paul says this. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, Paul is speaking to Timothy, his, uh, he's discipled Timothy, uh, Timothy's young in ministry, and he's trying to give him points for ministry. And there's got to be some churches, especially the ones that, that talk about you should be rich, and especially if I'm in the pulpit, I should be rich, that I'm sure they don't read this scripture because they can't read this scripture because it's convicting. So Paul is teaching Timothy in his ministry how to behave himself and what to pursue and what not to pursue. So it's not, it's not wealth in itself, but it's the avarice. It's the greed. It's the love of it. There was a guy I worked with before I became a police officer. I worked at, a, uh, uh, at a, an insurance company. It didn't pay much. It was a stepping stone job. And uh, basically, we worked at, this was a wheel. It was a big wheel, big table, and everybody sat around in a circle. And there was a, the files were in the middle, and we'd spin them around, take a file, and we'd handle it. No cubicles. You'd have to talk on the phone with everybody else talking. It was rough. But I remember this one guy came in, and he was always well-dressed, well-groomed, and he just didn't look like he belonged with us. <laughs> so I started talking to him, and he was, you know, what would you do before this? And he said he, walked on, he worked on Wall Street. And, you know, as he's talking, I'm thinking, why are you here with us? <laughs> so he said to me, it's not everything that it's cracked up to be. He goes, my first day on the job while I was being trained, I actually was pushed out of the way by the person training me because a guy jumped out the window. He killed himself. He jumped out the window because he lost a lot of money, I guess, on the stock markets. His life, that man who jumped out the window, was sad. It was def directly to proportionate in his mind to how much wealth he had. When he lost money, that was it. He felt his life was over and he killed himself. But in the same token, I know brothers who have and who do work on Wall Street who can handle that. And it's just a medium of exchange for them. You know, it's, it doesn't affect them that way. But this, there was a superstition in that day, in Jesus' day, that said that health was a, and you know, we'll see this, health was a blessing by God, sickness was a curse. Wealth was a blessing by God, and poverty was a curse. Unfortunately, that superstition still exists today, and that's called the prosperity gospel. In Proverbs 30, verse 8, Agur said, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Well, nobody wants to be poor, but he was saying, Don't give me riches either, because I... He, maybe he knew himself. Maybe he knew the effect that riches would have on him and it would change him. 
And again, another, uh, and I've talked before about the, the whole lottery thing. They had this, was it, it was on one of the Discovery channels or something, they talked about the curse of the lottery and how these people would win these millions of dollars and it would ruin their lives. There was a man who uh, professed to be a Christian uh, and he, he, got the, he won the lottery and he, he's, his life started to change, his lifestyle. He eventually separated from his wife. I think he got divorced and uh, he was miserable afterwards. He was wealthy, but he was miserable. And at the end of the story, uh, he actually, they found him and he, and he took his life with a shotgun. So this is what it did to this man. Some people just can't handle it. But here, the religious leaders in Jesus' day had the best of both worlds, so they thought. Jesus, of course, came to reign on their parade. They had the appearance of spirituality, but they had all the accoutrements of the world's pleasure and comfort. They, you know, they, they just couldn't make that jump to, uh, to really go wholeheartedly and seek the Lord. The Lord does give us a litmus test in verse 15, and he says, What is highly esteemed by men is an abomination to God. Why? Because the answer is it comes down to our idolatry. How, how does that happen? Because what God used to do for you in your life, God used to take care of you, you used to rely on God, you used to pray, and then you become wealthy, right? What happens is what God used to do, he's kind of pushed out of the way, and now wealth does for you. Wealth takes care of your retirement. Wealth takes care of your popularity. Wealth takes care of everything. So really what you're doing is you're moving God out of the way and making wealth an idol. It's idolatry. And people, you know, I'll go a step further and say anything that you put in God's place is idolatry. People can put their children in God's place and be idolatry towards their children. Uh, I know people whose whole spiritual lives are dictated by their children. And that's not right because your kids look to you. My son looks to me for spiritual guidance. I shouldn't have to run my life spiritually wise by my son. So it's pretty rough. Verse 16 says this, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Everything written from Genesis to Malachi pointed to the Messiah and the free gift of salvation, in effect, opening the doors to heaven. When the gates of heaven were opened, hordes have been pressing in there, rushing in since then, Jesus speaks about. It kind of reminds me of um, like a, when a concert comes to town and they haven't been in your state for a while and, and you know, it's like a sold out, it's going to be a sold out show. And you ever see... The, the, the ticket office, and they say, tomorrow we're going to start selling tickets. We have so many. And people actually camp out. Maybe some of you have done that. I don't know. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but people camp out. They've got their blankets. They've got their food. And all night long, they sleep on the pavement. When the doors open up, they're going to go get those tickets. Lines around the block, the whole deal. Well, the cool thing is, this is much better than a concert. The gates of heaven are opening up. John the Baptist paved the way, Jesus came, and bam, the doors were open, and people have been hoarding and pressing in since then. But not these guys. Jesus' response to them, in a sense, was, you guys missed the boat. You're too preoccupied with the temporal world. And he speaks about here the, um, what's a tittle? A tittle is the smallest stroke in a Hebrew letter. And what he's saying to them is, it's easier, guys, for a cataclysmic, destructive judgment to heaven and earth than for anything a little tittle, a little stroke of the Hebrew pen, to fail in God's word. That's pretty amazing. And why is that? Because God has standards in the scripture, and he has promises in the scripture. His truths are in the scripture. Every one of his promises will be fulfilled, and none of his standards will be redressed. 
the Messiah is the most important thing to be fulfilled. The law and the prophets hinge on it. Now, verse 18, it, it would appear that he's kind of shifting gears here. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her or who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. What does this have to do with what Jesus was speaking about? Did he just put this in here to mess me up so I couldn't flow with the sermon? I don't know. But the, the nexus may be the, uh, the following of the law and the prophets. Because the Pharisees supposedly prided themselves on following the law, right? But they were selective about what they followed. We've seen earlier in the scripture that the Pharisees rejected love. They rejected mercy. They rejected helping the poor. As a matter of fact, they uh, used the poor. They used the widows, right? They rejected the Messiah. And now Jesus is speaking about the truth on divorce, which they also rejected. Many people back then followed the Hillel rabbinical school, which had a very liberal view on a lot of things, including divorce. Actually, a husband under Hillel, he said that a husband could divorce his wife if he found another woman more attractive. What do you think of that, ladies? <laughs> You're not buying the Hillel stuff, are you? I, I can't imagine my wife living back then. Her filly would come out. She'd be like, oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> But some think that uh, Jesus came to abolish the law, but that's not true. He came to fulfill it, and there's a big difference. There's still judgment, and there's still consequences for actions. The scripture still speaks about that stuff. And what happened was Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, and it was a blow to two types of people, the Judaizers and the replacement theologists. The Judaizers were those who had an overfocus on the Old Testament, in order to be saved and to follow the Messiah, you would have to be Judaized and go back and follow certain Old Testament rites. And of course, the scripture doesn't, doesn't speak about that, but that was something that they wanted to do. On the other hand, you have the replacement theologists, which a lot of Christian denominations have gone to today, which totally discount the Old Testament and discount Israel's role at all, especially in end times prophecy. Replacement theologists feel that the church came to replace uh, Israel and Israel is no longer needed. They're disbanded. They have no no bearing at all, which is not true because there's a lot of Old Testament promises about Israel. There's many of them that haven't been fulfilled yet. So God fulfills his promises. So replacement theology doesn't work either. But what Jesus is saying here on divorce is God's original plan was for divorce to be non-existent. God's original plan was also that we would obey him. There would be no death, right? But as humans sinned and destroyed the covenant, he had to make new ones. Otherwise, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Because we, we rebelled against him, he had to have the plan of, of the Messiah come and dying for our sins. The same thing in, the, um, in Jeremiah 31, if you're taking notes, 31, 31 through 34, uh, God says that, he says to, tells Jeremiah to tell the people that uh, Israel broke his original marriage covenant, so therefore he had to make a new covenant where the law and God's word would be more not just tell somebody know the law know the law but it would be on their hearts and in their minds it would be they would live it in a sense and that was what the new covenant was about but uh, in Matthew also if you're taking notes this thing on divorce it expounds it more Matthew 19 1 through 12 is good to go through Matthew 19 1 through 12 and also Matthew 5 31 through 32 Jesus expounds why God allowed divorce and it was because of course hardness of heart and sin now, there was an awful practice uh, back then where uh, a man, a married man, could put his wife out and live with another woman. He would just put her out and leave her out there in the community, which was a 
terrible. Uh, and the original wife couldn't support herself or remarry because she was still technically married to her husband. So God commanded in Deuteronomy 24 that the husband, by God's law, had to, if he was getting divorced, was to take her certificate of divorce and put it in her hands, thereby freeing her from the marriage and freeing her from the abuse, in a sense. But of course, uh, and people say, well, what are, what are the grounds for divorce? People come in and ask that. Well, the other thing is, death is also a way to free yourself from your spouse, but uh, I want to emphasize that it should be of natural causes. <laughs> not murder. In case anybody gets any ideas, yeah, Pastor Joe said that if I kill my wife, I'm okay. No, we're not going there. I'll lose both jobs. But you also see Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that if an unbeliever departs, let them depart because God has called us to peace. I actually know a, a pastor who, uh, probably most of you don't know who I'm thinking of, but he was, he was, he had a reputation of a bad boy. You know, he had all the accoutrements of being the bad boy, and he got married, and his, his wife loved that about him. And then he became a Christian and started becoming a good boy. And he had the Bible, and he would read the Bible, and he started changing his ways, and she hated that. She, she, she absolutely hated that. So she actually uh, set, set everything in motion to leave him, and she, the guy ended up getting divorced because she just couldn't live with him anymore. Isn't that weird? It's like he had a persona about himself that... She didn't like it anymore, so she decided that he wasn't good enough to be her husband. So, so here we get into the gray area, which some people are afraid to tackle, but I'll tackle it. What if you're on the receiving end of a divorce? A friend of mine, another friend of mine, uh, they had some trouble, and I tried to get in, involved, and he, uh, it's nobody here, <laughs> and he, uh, his wife was divorcing him. She set the paperwork in, and the whole thing, the process was rolling. And, you know, I would pray with him and counsel with him. He really wanted the marriage to work. And he, he, he tried so hard to fight the divorce legally, and he couldn't do it. You know, and again, I've never been in, in, the, in a divorce. I've never been divorced, so I don't know what it's like exactly through the paperwork. But he, he couldn't stop her uh, from divorcing him. She had free will. And, uh, you know, I guess legally in the state of New Jersey, if you really want to get divorced, you can get divorced. And he couldn't stop her. I remember doing the men's retreat last weekend, and, you know, we talk about how it's, a men's retreat is great because, uh, you know, we, we talk about how to be better husbands and better fathers, and you really ra rally the troops to be that really spiritual leader, you know, go back and be a changed man to your wife and all that kind of stuff. I was good for a week, right, Heather? Maybe a week? <laughs> uh, so, no, I'm really much better than that. <laughs> But, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the emotion and the passion of, you know, rallying the troops, I would say to the guys, listen, and I don't know who's got a good marriage and who doesn't. I'd say to the guys, listen, you can't force your wife to resolve the issues with you. I mean, you can pray and you can try and you can be humble, but you can't. She has free will. Don't block the door and don't touch her. <laughs> there's, two, there's two laws that cover that in 2C25, the Domestic Violence Penal Code of New Jersey. <laughs> The former is false imprisonment and the latter is criminal restraint. But the question is, is God going to be mad at you if you're on the receiving end of the divorce? If your spouse is, is, is bent on divorcing you and they're going through a legal procedure and you can't fight it, you end up finding yourself divorced. Is God going to be mad at you? I don't think so. It's beyond your control. What are you going to do? What about an abusive spouse? Well, it does appear that uh, spousal abuse might have precipitated Deuteronomy 24. The Bible also tells us that we have to follow the laws of the land. And again, I've spoken about this before. As a police officer, every day in every township, 
pretty much in every police department, we deal with family problems. It's really sad. We see the, the dark side of humanity, so to speak. People put on a good face at church. People put on a good face when they're running for office and, and political office. But people's lives are falling apart behind the scenes. Uh, and many men and some women have gotten arrested under domestic violence for abuse. TROs are served, the whole deal. Uh, and the TROs are a funny thing because it, the TRO says, and there's a reason why I'm going through this. This isn't a law lecture. But the TRO says, temporary restraining order, judge signs it and says, you're served. You cannot send a, a postcard. You can't send a birthday card, an email. You can't talk to a relative to talk to your spouse, say, can we, can we work it out? If you violate any of those things, you go to jail with no bail. You can't even pay bail. You're, you sit in jail. And if it's on a Friday night, you're stuck there till Monday or Tuesday. So um, uh, a restraining order often, often precipitates a divorce in the sense that if it becomes finalized, how do you work something out when you can't contact your spouse? So you, you see how different things can come into the picture, right? Um, and I'll give you the flip side again. I keep, you know, I want to really cover both sides here. What is abuse these days? Now there's obvious abuse. And then there's, my spouse yelled at me and hurt my feelings. Well, if that's you, then you probably never grew up in an Italian family. <laughs> I have. But the bottom line is, you need to take totality of scripture before you make your decision. Some people come in and they say, they're just looking for a loophole. Well, I want to get divorced. You know, how do I do it? Where's the loophole? And, you know, that's, that's not good either. Because the, the fact is that uh, on the statistics, Christian marriages don't last any longer than se secular marriages. Uh, the, the statistics, and I've heard different ones, 50-50, even some Christian marriages end up in divorce more. Uh, you know, there's a lot of them out there, but let me tell you something. It's neck and neck. It's close, and that's pretty sad. The Christian community, we've set an awful record, and we set an awful example to the unbelieving world. And before you sabotage your marriage, whether it be adultery, whether it be abuse, whether it be falling out of love, I don't get that whole thing, falling out of love. Um, you know, it's because you're not working at the marriage. How do you fall out of love? God puts you with this person, you know, stay in the marriage. But take a moment to think about the ripple effects that it will have on your children, your friends, your church, and most of all, your God. You're representing God here. So that's the biggest uh, reason why you should really take another thought and really pray about what you're doing. But again, we see here in verse 18, it's a little verse, but it packs a lot of punch, doesn't it? We see here that it's another unintended item of what we're supposed to have stewardship over, and that's our marriages. By our marriages, we can set an example or set you know, to the unbelieving world. And I've got to tell you, I'm thoroughly impressed because, look, I'm not going to sit here and, and pretend that marriage is always bliss. Marriages work. You've got, you both got to put into it. It's just the way it is. God made, it's God's little joke on us. He made men and women so different. You know, that everybody's writing books about how men and women are different. We are. And he says to you, he says to us, not only you're different, but you're both sinners. Now work it out. You know, it's, mix it up and see what happens. <laughs> but what really impresses me, uh, what I get impressed by is not if you drive a Bentley. What I get impressed is how many people here, raise your hand, have been married more than 20 years? Wow. There's a lot of people. <laughs> right on. Was it always easy? No? You got your response there. But going back to the stewardship issue, there's one thing that I'm certain about. After this world passes away, there'll be many regrets among Christians. 
There's too many Christians that focus way too much on taking care of just themselves. Uh, they're poor stewards. Uh, Heather and I, um, I'm not a big movie watcher. My wife says, watch the movie with me. I'm like, oh, I really don't want to. And of course, I always do it. <laughs> she, she made me watch End of the Spear last night. How many people saw that movie? It was a good movie. I, I suggest you see it. And I really didn't want to watch it. I don't want to watch about something that happens in the Amazon jungles. I don't really care. i got things to do. <laughs> but I tell you, halfway through the movie, I was crying. I was bawling my eyes out, you know. <laughs> and of course, she had to say, and you didn't want to see the movie. See what marriage is about? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, all right, in all seriousness, it was about what happened in the, I guess, the Amazon jungles, it's South America, Ecuador, and there was these vicious, brutal tribes of Wadani indigenous peoples. They were Indians, and they would, you know, they wore the loincloths, and they had the spears, and they lived a very, you know, I guess what we would look at as a primitive life, for lack of a better word. But uh, there was a family of five missionaries, and they were determined to reach these people for Christ because the uh, government of Ecuador was going to come in and pretty much kill them because they would, they would kill tourists or, or hikers. They just were a violent, violent people. So these five uh, missionary families go, and the men make some contact, and things look good for a while, and then they end up getting all the men get killed. And, you know, it, it was, it's pretty heartbreaking. And then the wives decide that they're going to go in after the husbands were killed and try and make the attempt. And the cool thing is they were able to win these people over for Christ. Isn't that amazing? It was a great movie. But I tell you what, you talk about sacrifice. I looked at that movie, and at the end of the movie, I said to my wife, I said, I really don't think many Christians know what it means to die to themselves. And I'm, I'm in that category. I'm like, I'm going to be at the, the end of the line when it comes to heaven. All these missionaries are going to be in the front. I'm going to be out there, like, waiting tables or something. But... <laughs> You know, if you haven't seen the movie, it's a good movie. But again, that's not to say that God wants us to become poor, hole up in a monastery, and flagellate ourselves either. I mean, that's just bizarre, and it's not scriptural. He wants us to be, uh, he wants us to enjoy life and be good stewards of the gospel, spiritual gifts, material gifts, our time, and our marriage, marriages. And wealth is an inanimate object. It's it's really not evil or not. It's not evil or not evil. It's inanimate. Just like all the whole debate about guns and guns control, if you've got a bunch of thugs in your neighborhood with guns, you're going to be terrorized. You're going to stay in your house. But if you've got a lot of cops patrolling your streets and they're wearing guns, same guns, you're going to feel secure. You're going to be able to go outside and enjoy your life. So it's not the gun, it's the, the hands that it's in. And that's what this is all about here. So the point is, if you allow wealth to rule over you, your desire for it, your love for it, if you've got avarice in your heart, if you're manipula manipulated by its power, that's evil. But can you control it? Or can you use it to benefit God and further his kingdom? And basically, this comes down to two things. Who are we serving? Are we serving God or are we serving ourselves? Let's pray. You're going to stay